Look with me at the next portion of John's third letter as he writes to his brother in Christ, Gaius. In verse 9 and 10, he continues, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephus, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Here in verse 9 and 10, we see that John turns in his letter to Gaius to speak of another individual who Gaius and John both know whose testimony is entirely different than Gaius's testimony as we focused on last week in the prior verses. John has just finished portraying Gaius's faithfulness to walking faithfully in the truths of the Lord, that Gaius was loving the brethren well, he was caring for and supporting the missionaries. But there's another in the midst of them named Diotrephus, who is portrayed as loving himself more than others, not honoring the authority of the elders, refusing to show hospitality to the missionaries who've gone out for the sake of the name of Jesus. We all have a testimony. We have things that we're known for by other people. And when our selfish sin gets in the way, that testimony can cause strife among the brethren. It can hurt the cause of the name of Christ and his gospel. Brothers, I'm getting a little bit of bounce off the top up here in a unique way, so I'll just point that out and trust that you guys can tuck it in for me. That'd be awesome. While a study of a wayward brother might not be the most exciting sermon topic this morning, by faith we trust that God has many good and needed things for us simply due to the fact that he is ordained to put this in the holy canon, in, in his word. And so, let us look to it, knowing that God's at work in all these details and things. First, who is Diotrephus? For what we can gather from the text, Diotrephus is a, a participant of the same congregation or another local congregation near Gaius, which is why John is writing to Gaius about him. John is going to propose more formal steps to be taken for the sake of Christian accountability since Diotrephus is not listening or receiving the accountability he's being given, the personal attempts, the admonishment that's been given, the correction that's been attempted. Diotrephus's issue is not as much one of theological emphasis or heretical emphasis like the false teachers and deceivers that John warns about in his letters that we've studied so far. It's more ecclesiological. It's, it's more matters pertaining to the life and order of the church. Um, and so there's an accusation also of some personal sin that he's struggling with. 
according to Jesus' instruction, this includes efforts to bring admonishment or accountability includes now bringing alongside another brother, which is how I perceive what's happening here. And then maybe if he still doesn't listen, bringing the church into it. Diotrephus' sin, again, is not heresy, but it's sinful error. And, and the difference is important. Heresy is a false belief or a hold to false doctrine that goes against Scripture that is so major, it leads someone else to destruction, it's, it, to damnation. It, it's, it's of that level of error. Heresy is an error or an offense to God that causes someone to believe in another God or another gospel. It's error that means a person is not saved. What they're professing is not the truth about who God is. Um, they're, they're proving to not belong to God, to be outside of the fellowship of the body. But that's not what we see here. John's not accusing Joshua of damnable heresy or saying that he's not a brother in Christ. He's calling out the sin or error of his ways and the words he's using, he's doing that for the sake of accountability with hopes of repentance and unity or the possible exercise of church discipline if he continues to not listen or repent. What Diotrephus is caught up in is sinful error. It's a misapplication of God's word and command in his life and just his own sin. Error is a false belief or a doctrine that goes against Scripture, not leading to destruction. It's just the practice of what is sinful. It's the kind of sin or error that any of us really can, can get caught up in along our way. And it's why Scripture blesses us with so much instruction of how we are to come alongside a wayward brother or sister who's struggling. And we all can be caught up in these things and needing that. Needing that kind of help, that rebuke, that, that counsel. Church, what we don't just do when we see a brother or sister struggling this way is right from the beginning just throw them out. Con just consider them not a brother or sister. We don't just jump to that. They're struggling in a manner that's not honoring to Christ. They're caught up in sin, so it needs to be dealt with, but... But there is a journey. There's instruction for how we do this. We're to fight for them. We're to pray for them. We're to look to love them. To fight for what, what is righteous. To, to trust that God's at work. To, to remember that sometimes people are not going to be at the steps where we want them to be. But that's, that's part of how we're rallying around them. Diotrephus is struggling with unbiblical practices, and he's caught up in some selfish sin. We, we gather this by John's report, that he's putting himself first instead of loving others before himself, that he's dishonoring the elders who God has put over him, that he's not wanting to be bothered to have to show hospitality to strangers, and actually going so far to encourage the brethren to skip that too, to not do that even to push those people who are trying to do it away from the church. So let's consider these sinful errors one by one. The Lord gives them to us to, to see and to know, and it's helpful for us to do business with these as well. We might have some important things to glean. First, verse 9, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephus 
who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. Who likes to put himself first. He's guilty of loving himself before others. This is the opposite of what Jesus did for us. It's the opposite of what we're told to do for others. Philippians 2, 6-8, through 8, see the testimony of our Lord. Though he was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Praise God that he sent his only son to, to humble himself in sacrificial love and grace for all of us who he died to save, who deserved his righteous wrath for our sin. Instead of putting his wrath on us, do our sin, he takes on the wrath, do our sin on himself. Instead of condemnation, we are given the grace of God and the love of God, reconciliation. Peter says it well, 1 Peter 1, 18-19, You were ransomed from your futile ways that you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, with silver or gold. We, we weren't ransomed with money, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The spotless lamb, Jesus Christ, took on the sin of his sheep, who had gone astray. The shepherd becomes the sacrificial lamb to save us. We are the ones who went astray. He took my penalty I was due. He substituted himself in my place. This is the epitome of selfless love. This is because I should have been pierced. I should have been crushed, chastised, wounded, and condemned for eternity. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, never sinned, had no sin. He made him to be sin on our behalf. To take on our sin. That, that is the weight of the cross. The pain he endured was remarkable, was almost unfathomable. But that wasn't even the greatest burden he, he bore. He, he took on the wrath due our sin on the cross. He paid our price. He atoned for our sin. He didn't put himself first. Amen? He put us first. The cost of his life, of his suffering. Praise God for the sacrificial love of Christ to take on our ransom. 1 John 4.10, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us. And sent his only son, Jesus, as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
Theotrephus is doing the opposite of this. He's putting himself first. He's thinking about himself, what, what he thinks, what he wants, whatever his own feelings are. Those are all elevated. That's what he's fixed on. That's what he's focused on. This is the opposite of the love of Christ. The opposite of the love that Christ showed us and commands us to go do likewise, church. After telling the famous parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus asked those who were listening to him tell that story, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the man answered, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Luke 10, 36 through 37. After washing the disciples' feet, the Last Supper, Jesus said, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. John 13, 14, and 15. Church, we can't be selfish and only get caught up in thinking of ourselves. This is a prison. This, this is a breakdown in, in even the stewardship of our days. And you know, you look back on those days where you got so caught up in yourself and, and you can see the wreckage that it produces. We must love others as Christ has loved us. Too often our motivation for how we're loving each other is measured by their performance. We, we love each other and the overflow of Christ's love for us. That, that is just a fire hose of love. See Jesus as the source of that for you. The empowerment, the authentic empowerment of that. To turn away from that and to try to just produce that on your own, you're not going to do it well. You're not going to do it consistently. Our love for others, our sacrificial love, is how the gospel goes out. It's how Christ, atonement, love, grace for us, is put on display. It's, it's how we shine his light bright instead of putting it under a basket. In my personal, personal Bible reading time this week, um, the hot fire in my father's cabin as we spent time with the siblings this week, and just waking up much on my mind, so tired, but enjoying time in the word. I was blessed to run into this passage of Paul's words to the Romans. I think it helps us see what this is supposed to look like as opposed to thinking of ourselves first. Here are Paul's words in Romans 15, 1 through 7. We who are strong have an obligation to bear the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. 
Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whoever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, there is that empowerment, that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Isn't that cool? That was a, that was a sweet blessing this week in, in all my prayer and preparation for today's sermon. And the Lord just drops that in my lap. Here's another part of Scripture that's just so speaking to this emphasis. So I ask you, before we move on to the next error that Diotrephus is caught up in, let's have some self-evaluation. Christian, how might you be thinking too much of yourself in your endeavors lately? How do you need to confess this? Repent from it so that you're no longer walking in selfish sin, but honoring Christ by putting others before yourself in all things. Let's look at the next unbiblical practice of Diotrephus. It says in verse 9 that he does not acknowledge our authority. In verse 10, talking wicked nonsense against us. John says Diotrephus is speaking wicked nonsense. I, sometimes when I read scripture, I just kind of giggle. Like, like this is one of those, like the words. Hurtful or not helpful babble is another way you could translate what, what the Greek is saying here. Um, wicked nonsense is kind of fun. He, he's also being disrespectful to the leaders that God has put over them in the local church. He's not heeding the biblical priorities that the elders are putting in place, like showing sacrificial love and hospitality to traveling missionaries. In a self-minded way, he's denying that, doing his own thing. His sin is likely linked to a pride in him that's rising up to usurp the authority of the elders that God's put over him. We've all struggled with humble submission in our lives, have we not? It is truly something our flesh does not like to do, to be humble, to submit to the authority of someone that the Lord's put over you, to do that joyfully. And going back to our childhood, we would do this a lot, right? We would second-guess our parents. We would... We would declare they're getting this wrong and we would disobey them. Why? Because we think we have a better view of this. Maybe you're a wife who has struggled in, in trying to claim the authority that God's given to your husband. You, you want a seat at that table in a sinful way. Or maybe you're a man whose pride has risen to usurp the authority of your boss. 
or your ranking officer. We've all been in a position where someone who's God has put over us in authority, has instructed us, lead us, hold us accountable, and sometimes those things are to things we don't really like or we don't want to do. Maybe we disagree with it. When this happens, and it will, it's important that we see and embrace God's good design, command on us to honor appointed authority, even when our flesh struggles to like it or want to agree. Please understand that our humble submission to authority is how we show reverence to Christ. You need to not disconnect those. Paul says in Ephesians 5.21, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Why does a man or a woman, a child, submit to someone else? Well, if you're a Christian, you do that out of reverence for your master, Jesus Christ. You revere him. You respect him. And therefore, you live out what he has commissioned you to. And you do it well. Not because these people who are above you are good leaders. Right? Isn't that often how we justify not listening to authority over us? You're really terrible at this right now. But that's not why we do it. We do it out of reverence for Christ. Let's dive deeper into this because it's often something we really do need a reminder of what proper submission looks like so we don't end up like Diotrephus and setting aside the authority put over us. Submission is to line up under another. Biblical submission means a joyful, humble, wholehearted commitment to follow an appointed authority. So when the Holy Spirit is at work in us, we practice joyful and faithful submission to the God-given authorities he's put over us. And when we do this, we show reverence to Christ. What does that mean to show reverence to Christ? It, reverence here is a right fear, a, right, a high regard, a deep respect. We honor Christ as our Lord by submitting to those in authority that he's placed over us. The world is not moved, they're not empowered to do this. That's why worldly, fleshly men to say, shine it, I, I quit, I'm done with this. Why, why, you know, fleshly children will show great disrespect to their parents. In this area where scripture is clear, is the biggest way they show reverence and worship to God. What are the authorities that God's put over you? It depends on who you are. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ sets up a, a number of particular examples. that We find that in Ephesians 5. Think about where that is in Scripture. Paul's about to get into a number of very specific examples uh, in this letter to the Ephesians. And let me remind you a few of those just briefly because we circle the room well with this. Children... Biblically, are commanded to submit to your parents. Ephesians 6, the next chapter, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. 
Servants are to submit to their masters. A few verses later, Ephesians 6, 5, bondservants, obey your earthly masters. What falls under this one is the most basic lines of authority in life. It's what Paul says to the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 22, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So we could look then where authority lines are drawn. So if a player on a team, you should submit to your coach. If you're a soldier in the military, you should submit to your ranking officers. An employee of a business, you submit to your boss. If you're a student in a school, you submit to your teacher. Wives are to submit to their husbands. Ephesians 5.22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we read, Husbands are to submit to Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.3, I want you to understand, the head of every man is Christ, the head of every wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Society is to submit to the governing authorities. Romans 13.1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Church members are to submit to the elders. Hebrews 13.17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. All believers are to submit to Christ. Ephesians 5.24, the church submits to Christ. James 4, 6, and 7, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Remember, God's word says that we are to honor those in authority over us unless what they're telling us to do is sinful or against God's authority. Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. You know, we, had, we had some nuances of how that played out through all this COVID craziness. There were things that we were being asked to do by the authorities over us that were not opposed to Christ's authority or scripture, so we had to show humble submission because that's what the Lord's called us to do. And there were other things that we were being asked or told to do that were against what God's told us to do, and so we rightly refused to do it because his authority is greater. With all that under our belt, just a quick reminder of that, we can see now how Diotrephus is caught up in prideful sin as he's reported to not acknowledge the authority of the elders over him. Verse 9, and going so far to talk wicked nonsense against those same elders. Hurtful, non -help, not helpful babble. Scripture is clear that we are to be mindful of the words we speak. For we will be held accountable by the Lord who knows every one of them. What an important discipline it is to learn to master the tongue. To not tell the filthy joke just because it's going to get some laughs. Hold it back. To use our words to build up, not to tear down. To be speaking truth and not lies.
Matthew 12, 36. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. That's a humbling verse. Paul's words to Titus are helpful here too. Titus 3, 1 through 2, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Clearly, Diotrephus was out of bounds in these things. And therefore, John was right to call him out. They needed to address it. This may be a good reminder for us of the kind of conduct that we who belong to Christ are to have and not to have. Let the Holy Spirit ordaining that this is the passage we're studying today be of a specific help to you in these areas that might need to apply for your own life and testimony. Let's look at the next error Diotrephus was accused of. Verse 10, so if I come, I will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers, also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Diotrephus is refusing to show hospitality and stopping those believers who are attempting to show that hospitality to these missionaries, going so far to try to remove them from the local body. This is the opposite of what we saw Gaius praised for at the opening of this letter. Church, hospitality is something we are to be known for. It's to be a marker of how we put others before ourselves. It is how we live open-handed with, with the things that God's entrusted to us instead of letting it become an idol to us or some kind of false sense of value and my precious and like consuming us. We're to be faithful managers of God's provisions and God's purposes for God's glory. Part of this is to steward our time and our stuff in a way that blesses others. Let me remind you of how the author of Hebrews commends this in Hebrews 13, 1 through 2. Let brotherly love continue. Be at work. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Brothers, selfless love is to to not be haphazard, but to continue. It's not to only be done when you've got everything tucked in and working right. All right, now I'm in a position to do this. So it's going to cost us something to do it when it's not convenient. Brotherly selfless love is to continue. Listen to how this is emphasized later in the same chapter of Hebrews 13, 12 through 16. Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. 
Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Christ showed us the way to sacrificial life. He calls us to take up our cross and follow him daily to join him in suffering. All of this constant language in the New Testament is to remind us that we're not living for, for this, for, for this, for, for, for this. We have no lasting city here. So why do I need to overcling to my stuff? No, instead, I want to share what I have. I want to bless others. I want to help take care of others. Not pride or ego or selfishness that refuses to welcome brothers and stops those who want to welcome brothers, goes so far to create a different economy in the church, trying to remove those who are looking to honor the word and to honor their shepherds. Diotrephus is out of bounds. Make it personal for you. How might you be stuck or struggling to not show hospitality to others? Your testimony is more like Diotrephus than Gaius. I know that some of you struggle to invite people over to your house because you're embarrassed by how your house presents itself. I would argue that is first and foremost a stewardship thing in your life. That we should be good stewards of what God has entrusted to us. That, that's the first thing there. That that reveals. You can't be a neglectful steward of your home and then use that as your excuse for why you are not opening your home to others. Maybe it's not how it's kept, but it, maybe it's simply that you're embarrassed that your home doesn't look like other people's homes. Your car doesn't look like other people's cars. So you keep it to yourself. You don't want to be embarrassed. That it doesn't measure up like you think it should. Brother, sister, if this is you, understand that that's pride. Understand that that's fear of man that's ruling your heart, that, that's ruling your identity instead of Christ. Christian, we belong to Christ. Our identity is to be in Christ, not how nice our stuff is or how big our house is. It is in these ways that we join Team Diotrephus and miss out on the opportunities that God has given us to love others in the gospel. He gave you today. So if you keep using the excuse, well, I just need to be better at keeping the house clean, we'll eventually have some people over someday. And then weeks and months and years go by, and you realize, I never, we, man, I, I never really did that. That's not okay. God, God's given you today. Let us steward today well. May we repent and seek new practices with our stuff and our days that the Lord's entrusted to us. That we're not thinking about 
obeying God's word in these things someday. We're, we're ready to do it today. And if you need some help, like you're going, man, this, that feels like, I don't even know how I would do it. I'm, I'm swallowed, I'm drowning in the other things that I'm facing. Then, brother, sister, that's a great moment for you to get to raise a hand to some mature brothers and sisters in your life and to say, hey, I see you do this. I'm really struggling to do that. Can you just help? Can you give some observation or some counsel? Because sometimes a lot of what that is is, you know, you're used to seeing your situation like this, and you need someone to help you see it like this. And you're like, oh, okay, yeah, there's, there's some different ways I could go at this. And that's helpful. Maybe even just simply some needed accountability along the way. Hebrews 13, 16. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Look with me at what John says he plans to do about this wayward brother. 3 John 10. So if I come, I will bring up what he's doing. This sounds like a faithful step in the process of accountability that Jesus gave us in Matthew 18. Let me remind you of Jesus' instruction there. Matthew 18, 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So the step of this process is to lovingly admonish a brother or sister who is caught up in sin. The simple definition of admonishment is to warn or reprimand firmly. It is a loving light on sin. It's a helpful warning to point out sin. Why is it loving and helpful? Because often we don't see what we're doing with clear eyes. We need some help. We need some accountability of a brother or sister to help us do business with something that we're not honoring Christ in. Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. The wisdom part there is key. I'll come back to that. Luke 17, 3. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Not, you know, we'll see how you do. No, I forgive you. I love you. Hebrews 3, 12, 12 through 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, and none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of your sin. We are our brother's keeper. And so we are to love each other enough to highlight sin when we see it. If you're newer to our church and you're thinking, I like these people, I love blah, 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 whatever about us, but you're thinking you're going to fly in and fly out and no one's ever going to raise a hand or call you up or say, can we talk and point out something maybe that you're struggling? Like, whoa, I, I wasn't looking to sign up for that here. No, no, like, we want to do church his way. 
there's a lot of churches out there pitching something that will make you feel real comfortable your way. That ain't here. All glory be to God. We don't do this to keep score. We don't do this so we can feel righteous and keeping everyone, you know, we got to check that. We don't do it to make a person feel little or less than us. We do it because it honors Christ. We do it because we really love them. Because we're trying to look out for each other. And therefore, that's why we do it lovingly, not harsh or with a sledgehammer. And so, in this, we have to use righteous judgment. Remember how I just mentioned a moment ago, admonishing one another in all wisdom? We can, we can all become self-righteous or fleshly motivated to point out other sin in a conclusive way that's not accurate. We run into this a lot, where someone thinks they've got a beacon on. This is what this person did. I've decided that's what this is, and so let it be known that's what this is. When sometimes that's not maybe what it is. And so we need to have righteous judgment. It's a very important part of admonishment and accountability. Just because you think you have a clear view of someone's sin doesn't mean it's the case or even what happened. Jesus is clear in John 7, 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. It's so easy to become very convinced that our perspective is actually what happened when sometimes that perspective is skewed or only part of it or, or you caught a glimpse of a bigger narrative and, you, and you, therefore you saw it out of context. The truth is we are all susceptible to seeing things very selfishly or without giving others the benefit of the doubt. We're often guilty of demanding that we know what another person's intentions were. I know what you were doing here. Or what was meant by what was said, when sometimes that's not what was meant by what was said. Your aim in bringing someone's sin up is not to come as judge and jury, but is to come with love and, and hopes that there's a unified, humble effort to pursue Christ. And if there's sin, identify it and turn from it with confession and repentance for the glory of God. Church, we must have righteous judgment. God's word is so helpful here. And so are the plurality of mature brothers, which is why Christ in all of his wisdom commends that if that first one-on-one combo just doesn't go well, you bring another. You bring some help, some accountability, maybe some, some counsel, maybe to help moderate a hard conversation to pursue the Lord together. You leave me alone, and from my own perspective, my own corner, I can get pretty worked up and, and, and maybe have a real like grip on something that I need to see different, that I maybe need even see my part in it. Matthew 18 gives us a way to settle the dispute of two, if they can't agree on what even happened. Whether it was sinful offense or not, you defer to the authority of elders, other mature brothers, to help. And so I just want to commend you, church. Don't stay stuck in your own head. This is a place that we can often get, and it's very detrimental to the body, to our testimony. 
to, to cook up your hurt, to stay kind of stuck in your corner. Also, don't stay stuck between two people. Make every effort for the unity of Christ. Get godly help and counsel. God has clearly provided a roadmap to helping resolve these things. There is no need in the church for ongoing disunity between believers. That's why those scriptures say we're not to sue each other. Every dispute can be handled among the brethren according to the word. There's just too much at stake to not be diligent to this. It's out of love that we practice admonishment and accountability and restoration are pursued. We love one another. We want to honor Christ. Paul says it well, Galatians 6, 1 through 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch over yourself, lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Let me point out that John has already taken the first step of the point to point out the concerns he has for Diotrephus's error, as we see in the opening part of verse 9 that he had already written a letter to the church. He's, he's taken this first step. I've written something to the church. But Diotrephus, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So he shirked it. He, and so now he's taken the second step, telling local believers so that they can rally together. If I come, I will bring up what he is doing. We'll address this together. So these next steps are taken to hold him accountable. Jesus prescribed, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So the hopes in this final step with greater accountability, unrepentant person would prove to belong to Christ, would show humility and repentance, stop sinning and turn from it and do what honors the Lord. If he doesn't repent after proper exhortations made, then Christians in relationship with that person are to cease relational interaction with him until he repents. Why? Because his testimony is contrary to that of one who belongs to Christ. As we've seen in the sinful errors that he's caught up in. The disfellowship that Jesus calls for in Matthew 18, 17 is what we see in several other places in Scripture, such as 1 Corinthians 5 and elsewhere. It's important that we see how Christian accountability and discipline is loving, God-honoring, and gracious to all parties. A few quick reasons why. God often uses it as a means to draw back the true believer who's in sin for glorious reconciliation and ongoing sanctification. Praise God. Church, those who we've disfellowshiped with, are you praying for their repentance and reconciliation? We should be. God is able to do that work in them. That's our hope. In some cases, God uses it to show a deceived person, a falsely testifying person, an unrepentant person, that they're not actually united to Christ. We treat them as an unbeliever, as a Gentile, as a tax collector. Maybe that's going to be their ongoing testimony. They, they were among us, but really having superficial faith. Not proving to be among us because they didn't repent. 
as true Christians will, will repent. So that's good for the church to, to clarify who is really of Christ and who isn't. God also uses it to help protect his people from approving, tolerating, or, or falling into sin ourselves by the operation of that discipline. Christian discipline also protects Christ's people and the gospel from being tainted with false testimony of those who are claiming Christ, but then not walking in step with the gospel. These are all important reasons why it is loving and right that we practice these things. In closing, I pray that we all see God's purpose in including John's rebuke of Diotrephus here in 3 John. It's yet another reminder that we have in Scripture for how serious God takes sin and how we truly do love each other to fight for what is righteous and what is God-honoring on our journey together. This is needed in our modern day for too many wrongly think that we should not judge others. Leave the judging up to God. There are a lot of Christians. You might even be here today thinking, yeah, isn't that what the Bible teaches? It's a gross misunderstanding of Scripture to just say all judging is up to God. We are to have no judging. Scripture certainly restricts us from certain kinds of judging. In the case of Romans 14, um, the immediate context there, as a quick example, is on opinion-type matters, Christian liberty-type matters. I don't get to judge you because in your Christian liberty, you do something different than I think it should be done. Paul uses the food choices as an example that some are making, or that some people are regarding one day as more important than another. These Christian liberty-type manners are not things to quarrel over or judge each other over. However, what we must understand is that we don't get to think of core doctrine matters or violations of God's law as simply Christian liberty matters in order to prohibit righteous judging. No, we are to have righteous judgment. Jesus commands in John 7, 24, I say it again, judge with right judgment. So this is an essential thing that we have a righteous judgment for one another. That We understand that those who are outside of Christ, those who are unbelievers, they have a judge. God is their judge. If they remain guilty for their sin, they will, they will be forever condemned by the judge. Sin issues that require judgment, righteous judgment, for those who claim Christ are, what we see in Galatians 1, unrepentantly persisting to twist the gospel. Romans 16, 2 John 9, Titus 3, not acknowledging or teaching sound doctrine. 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15, disobeying the commands found in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 5, 11, sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, slander, drunkenness, theft. There's a lot of things that we are to have righteous judgment. We're to love each other enough to speak up, fight for what's righteous, looking to the power of God to help us overcome and walk in line with the gospel to glorify him with our days. 
It must be biblical truth, wisdom that informs this. Not our feelings, not our preferences, to have godly wisdom in our right judgment that leads us to admonishment or accountability with one another. I'm thankful for John's modeling some of that for us today in this passage. He's fighting for a wayward brother and leaning on guys to provide some plurality in doing it. May we also aim to exercise these things biblically, faithfully, and with great love for one another and for Christ. Amen? By his grace and for his glory, may it be so. Pray with me. Father, you are a good God. Uh, You've blessed us with this hidden gem, this this text that I think it falls into a category of just one that we'd be so quick to run by and miss out on on the real blessed help, instruction, example it is to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how it ministers to us ongoingly. We want to be faithful to study it, to know it. For so long, we've tried to order our lives our way according to our best judgment, but we need your wisdom. We need your revelation to inform our thinking, to help us prioritize our lives. And what a joy it is when you go to work in us like never before. I pray that we would never count ourselves out. I'm thankful for the highlight yesterday in my dad's testimony that in all of his struggle to be right in his own eyes and so many things, there was a real sweet season in his last years where he showed humility and openness and transparency in ways that he struggled to do for a lifetime. That was your work in him. And a good example to all of us that we we don't ever get too old for the mighty God to do major things in us. And so for all of us, may it be so. None of us are outside of what you are able to do, what you will do by your holy decree. Even if you slay us, as we sang earlier, even if you test us to the greatest margin, may our faith, our love, our joy, our commitment to honoring you rise above and be on display for others in these days you give us under the sun before you take us home to glory. Thank you for the good shepherd who walks with us in the middle of it all, the hard stuff, comforts us, blesses us. Oh, how we look forward to dwelling with you in the house of God forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.